Hi, and welcome to the How Not to Think podcast, the podcast that gets you thinking about your thinking, which actually is particularly relevant uh, for today's guest. I am delighted, and I mean that uh, very sincerely, to have with me today Dr. John Leaf. Uh, John is an amazing expert in cells, in in everything related to cell communication, consciousness. His work for me stands out among many others, uh, resonates, and I just think it's amazing stuff. If you haven't read his book, The Secret Language of Cells, I really encourage you to do that. It will give you insights into yourself, literally, that most people have no idea about what is going on inside them, and to some extent, what motivates them. That's what we're going to talk about today. So John, Dr. John Leaf, welcome back. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be back. Nice yeah. to be Great. I'm sure since we last talked about 18 months ago, I'm sure you've uh, come up with even more discoveries and uh, yep. latest thinking about the cells in our body, the mind-body, the role it plays in conscious, subconscious, all of that stuff. Um, so over to you. What's What's been going on since I last spoke to you? <laughs> well, I picked one slice of the continuum and the orders of magnitude of consciousness, meaning uh, humans, societies, the world uh, is one level, then our brain, how, uh, organs, um, and then it goes down to cells. And I picked cells as a, because I was studying um, cognitive awareness and uh, consciousness in nature. And, you know, written about we, bees, we talked last time, how amazingly smart, small little brain insects are. But then microbes are extremely intelligent. Well, microbes are tiny compared to our cells that are even more intelligent. And there are a lot of them. And they communicate and, and constantly back and forth. And it, it became apparent to me, and I wanted to demonstrate that all of physiology and biology, as far as we know it up till now, is based upon cells communicating. Now, having said that, I did put a teaser in the book. The last chapter is about an, uh, a molecule, an enzyme. And I must say, at that time, I didn't understand how a molecule could communicate the way mTOR does. mTOR sits there. What it does is it creates clusters. It attracts macromolecules, large molecules, and makes clusters. And there are two famous ones, one and two, and they do a huge amount of stuff. One of them determines how much uh, protein we need. It determines where there are amino acids lying around in the, in the, that they can gather to build proteins. The other one attracts ribosomes, goes locally to uh, stimulate the ribosome to make proteins. So it, this one molecule has tentacles and communication vastly through the, and it just really intrigued me at the time. I was writing about cells and organelles, of course, mitochondria and uh, uh, Golgi body. So there are the membrane-bound organelles that have been considered the organelles up until 
the last two years, really. Everything's changed, by the way, completely. Biology is completely turned upside down the last two years, but no one really knows that yet. Um, and membrane bound. So, for example, you were you were very taken with um, uh, the biology of a belief where he talks about the membrane being uh, everything. Uh, the brain and, and and there's something and he was a pioneer and there's something to be said about it and he did say that they're like uh microcrystal uh, leds they're like uh semiconductors and that and that was quite brilliant at the time really way ahead of his time uh and then i described the 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 primary cilium which is one appendage that really seemed to be the center of the kind of communication that he's talking about okay but then i started writing about how the organelles are talking inside. And then I just mentioned at that time that they discovered that viruses communicate and viruses aren't cells. They're just a molecule and they attract other molecules and they, but they send signals, very deliberate signals. And then it's been found recently in the last two years, it's exploded. It's called sociovirology. And it's basically, they found at least 15, 20 species of viruses, including polio and rabies and important ones that we are dealing with, uh, that are talking to each other and are talking to other cells. And they are using the same languages that uh, cells are using, these, these little molecules. Now, I do state in my in the paper I'm writing now and in the book that we we mainly talk about molecules communicating because that's what we know about and that's what we study. A decision was made uh, at the time that quantum mechanics was being developed in the 1920s. Pauling was like a seminal genius of biology, like a century ahead of his time. And he said, along with a guy named Delbruck, a physicist, you know, Pauling invented quantum chemistry. He invented the orbitals, invented. I mean, he's the one who, who described it in mathematics, and he was very hepped up on vitamin C also, but uh, which is still pretty good advice. But any, anyway, um, but he said in 1920, he said that it's not the bonds, which is what he won the Nobel Prize for describing, the orbitals, how they connect, how electrons bind atoms together into molecules you know you have the orbitals floating around and they connect and and they buzz between them and and that's how molecules form but with all the vibrations going on in this molecule um when it vibrates here it's attracting something else here and then it goes down here and it's attracting something different so there's those are called um so there's covalent bonds meaning two uh orbitals of valencies are connected and then there's non-covalent bonds which Pauling in 1920 said are very very important for everything and he was right but what happened is that biology went very soon after he said that they discovered DNA and then everything became the Watson Crick dogma and when I say dogma I mean, we still are buried under a Darwinian, narrow-minded dogma that has been vastly disproven in every single way. Uh, but it's still 98% of biology are looking for these molecules 
of, co of, of covalent bonds, whereas most of the action is the non-covalent bonds, which is how molecules that are floating around relate to each other and connect and form these clusters that it turns out, it's a big story, but it turns out molecular clusters are everything currently. Mm. Okay. And molecular clusters are like the mTOR, which I wrote about in that last chapter. Uh, but there are everywhere. And what they do is they have certain, like it used to be proteins, the structure of the protein was the most important thing. Now it's the opposite. A third of the proteins are unstructured. They're like strands floating free. And they can do all kinds of stuff through non-covalent attractions while they're floating there. That's how the nuclear pore, it's a huge pore. They have these things floating there and they attract certain things. They bring them together. Well, it turns out that's a major mechanism, but not by any means the only mechanism. It's also RNA has structures and that's involved. And uh, there are many different parts to this, but to make it simple and understandable, basically certain things like these proteins, these uh non-structured proteins they're called intrinsically disordered proteins or <laughs> anyway idps but anyway um these non-structured strands of proteins have all kinds of uh sequences that attract various things and they bring together these clusters okay mm -hmm. and then when the cluster forms at a certain point it separates out like oil and water into a different phase and those are called droplets, okay? Now, I don't wanna make this too complicated. Uh, my paper will come out in a while. Uh, oh, and by the way, what we show in the paper is that deep inside these clusters, there are environments that, so you have these clusters stuck together in a droplet forming um, rivulets in between, vibrating and it's a semiconductor because you have all these rivulets of electrolytes solutions with hydrogen with four levels of water molecules that are charged between creating these things. And deep inside these rivulets, there's like a cave that a protected cave, which is where the reactions occur. And the reactions are in this protected cave, and it's been proven. And my paper will show all this, but it's been well proven uh, that they occur by quantum mechanisms of tunneling and uh, superposition. So, um, so when a light beam hits a plant, the photosynthesis molecule, it's almost 100% efficient getting to there through all kinds of stuff to the reaction center. And that's because of a quantum effect of superposition where it can view all the different ways to go at once and go the fastest way. In 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 the in this cave, the it life cannot possibly exist the way people think about it. It's not diffusion, like randomly. They think the cell is like water, like the ocean, and they're randomly diffused. It's hopelessly slow. Even if you look at the cave with ordinary chemistry, it's like a million times too slow. What happens is tunneling occurs where the the part the electron or the proton that's involved in the reaction is actually a wave at the same time as it's a particle and because it's a wave it can sweep around uh the other molecule and barriers and create a reaction through tunnel it's called tunneling 
where it's basically functioning as a wave, particles functioning as a wave, which we know from the double slit experiment. That's famous, you know. So in any case, what my paper shows is that all of these communications, if you go deep, deep down, are based upon these clusters, based upon it being a semiconductor, which is what the belief book said, but, you know, not really. Um, it, basically, the idea of semiconductors are everywhere in the cell. So we don't have the brain of the cell yet. We do not have that. But we have all kinds of semiconductors working. We have... Um, these clusters, now these clusters are not simple. They're extremely, they're they're layered, they have multiple layers, they have structures, they have, and and they're everywhere. Like in the nucleus, there are uh, a thousand of them, and oh all gosh. the DNA works that way. Every Recently, just last week, they found that this is how a virus operates. He creates a cluster, and in the cluster, all kinds of things can happen that can't happen. You, it's very hard to imagine how these things happen, you know? Well, they happen in a created environment where these reactions can occur, bing, bang, boom. They, you know, they can just occur, and that's in the cluster. So um, anyway, but all of this is still um, basically molecules. But the fact of the matter is, in these deep clusters, they're vibrating and they're creating electromagnetic waves, they're creating charge waves, they're creating acoustic waves, they're called phonons. These are particles of, of, of sound. So all of these other things that we know are related because of the tremendous surge in brain stimulation. That's the other thing. As we've learned about these clusters through polymer science and nano nanoscience on the other side we have electricity of people zapping people with all kinds of uh tm magnetism all kinds of electricity uh, ultrasound uh, regular sound and we're bombarded by light and sound and we're constantly the cells are reacting and that, that's how the environment works probably probably again i stick to science so there's a huge area that is not discovered yet of the communication. I mean, we have plenty with the molecules. This is great uh, how what's happening, uh, but it's gonna be vastly more um, understandable when we have electromagnetic communication at this level, because we know that's happening because we can zap um, cells, organs, brains, and get definite effects. Mm -hmm. The problem is, now, ECT is a malign treatment. It was the first brain stimulation, uh, other than mesmer and magnetism, which was discredited and now has come back, and, and he was way ahead of his time. But ECT at first was kind of a brutal thing where you have this real seizure. Then they, they honed it down to, if you watch ECT today, all that happens is one finger twitches a little bit and uh, to measure that you are getting a seizure effect in the brain. But the fact is, it's extremely safe, safer than medications, and it's far more effective than medications, but it's still not used widely because of the stigma, except mm -hmm. some group of people just love it. But it took 30 years to figure out exactly what magnitude, what amplitude, what frequency, where, bilateral, unilateral, what circuits, blah, 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 blah. Each of these techniques, and there are a hundred of them, 
direct, indirect, electric, magnetism of this kind, another sound and uh, uh, light triggering ultrasound inside, uh, ultrasound itself, uh, magnetism and ultrasound. There's just a million techniques, but we don't know. It's the Wild West. We don't know. Mm -hmm. It'll take 10, it won't, maybe it won't take 30 years because we know more science now, but it's going to take 5, 10, 15 years to figure out the right circuits, the right strength. But we know something's going on. Mm -hmm. And we know at the level I'm writing about, something's going on because you can zap a cell with electricity and get all kinds of uh, things happening. So clearly the electromagnetic mag uh, ultrasound sound is the future, mm -hmm. but the present is molecules that are both uh, particles and waves. And that's enough. <laughs> actually for this moment but uh and it's very exciting so anyway that's where i'm at i'm at where the communication has gone deeper it's deeper inside the cell it's everywhere it's constant and all of life at the deepest level are molecules communicating so i don't know if that helps anything so my problem with some of this stuff is yes it has something to do with the mind and the brain but what and how can you translate the intelligence of a, of a cluster to the intelligence of a cell? How do you translate the, the cell intelligence to the organ intelligence, to the whole body intelligence, to the mind brain intelligence? So it's a tremendous leap yes. and speculation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that it's there. But I want the mechanism. I want to know it's real and how it works, et cetera. And when I find out, I'll be happy to tell you. But, uh, you know, I keep up with everything. Uh, yes, you do. World, but I don't sit at a lab. I sit at a, uh, a data thing and just search every day for all the research that's going on and the conclusions. And I take those conclusions. So I'll be well aware when we make these uh, advances. But I just don't see a simple way to translate what we know are, is an intelligent cell, an intelligent brain cluster, an intelligent universe, and translate that into definite ways of working with the conscious and the unconscious mind. Mm -hmm. That's, I don't know, that's where you come in, actually. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't have the answers too, but you're right. It's, it's easy to come up with you know, a model of something, but the science just gets so much, as you've shown, just gets more and more complex and complicated that it, in some ways it really makes no sense because you don't know. We don't know what that relationship is between our thoughts or our moods. Or I mean, we can speculate, but the complexity that you have uncovered is just literally mind blowing it really is life is so far beyond what we imagine <laughs> it's just you know that's the difference you know you look at a at a great art you look at a michelangelo painting with a microscope and you get you look closer and closer and closer and when you finally are really close all you see are a bunch of dots whereas in, with life you look closer and closer and closer 
and it just gets more and more, more and more details, more and more complicated until you hit the quantum level where it's kind of fuzzy, but it's vibrating and a lot of stuff's happening, you know, so. Yeah, no, it, it, it is literally mind boggling, but it's great because it shows um, how we have to be careful as human beings, you know, in terms of being very limited in how we see things. Right. Now, having yeah. said that, I'm for anything that works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, me too. <laughs> I was a psychopharmacologist. And it's funny, this resurgence of psychedelics, because mm. in the 1960s and 70s at Harvard, I was, um, I think, the only person uh, researching this. And I wrote a thesis on LSD. And I uh, did research on the effect of LSD was published in the American Psychiatric Journal and on uh, the fact that it did not cause brain damage. And these people tend to get more spiritual. I proved that in mm -hmm. 1972, published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. And then I published other articles. And then, of course, and I was running a course at the Kennedy School where I had all the experts from who were doing what they called at that point psycholytic research, which is micro I call it microdosing now and psychedelic research which was big dose like Groff was the epitome of the microdosing and Walter Ponke was the epitome of the big dose of course Walter Ponke they both worked at the National Institute of Health and they would fly, I would fly them up to Harvard and have my meetings and this went on from 69 70 71 and in 71 and 72 they made everything so illegal you couldn't even study it it was so okay. stupid I mean, it was beyond stupid. So I knew a lot about this in 1970. However, by 1975, that was not a good thing to know about. That was mm -hmm. a black mark. And I was mm -hmm. always persecuted for that. And I went into a field that people sort of left me alone because no one cared about elderly and brain injured people. So I then created all the programs. Uh, I created the, I helped create the field of geriatric psychiatry. I created the journal, uh, right. uh, created the largest system of care. So it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I went into this unknown field and uh, and, and was able to be creative without people who hated me because I was interested in psychedelics. And now, you know, 40 years later, it's everywhere. So I don't know. I, I have my own opinions about that. But I was going to ask you about that. What what What's your reading of? You know, well, I think research. it's just way too fast what's going on today. Um, legalizing everything. I mean, the problem is set and setting. The problem is when you use these drugs, you need to know what you're doing. And what do you, what does that mean? Well, it means that a lot of different things, a lot of different people. Um <laughs> The studies that were done at Johns Hopkins recently where they proved that dying cancer patients are able to cope with death is a repeat of studies that were done in 1966, okay? The studies of the religious experience, Walter uh, Clark did that. Uh, he gave LSD and a, double, a placebo double-blind to Jesuit priests on Easter, and he proved that they had their greatest religious experiences, the one who took the LSD and the others didn't. Uh, he and Leary went to the prison and worked with recidivist criminals and were able to turn around the most worst, the worst uh, murderers in Massachusetts at that time. And all kinds of work was done with depression and anxiety. So there were pioneers in this field that are being ignored today. 
and uh, there's a rush to just use it. And the problem that happened at that time was it just went out into the public and everyone started using it at parties and at, at, at Grateful Dead concerts and whatever. And the problem is in an un in an unknown setting with all kinds of variables, anything can happen. And you can have terrible trips and it can be quite damaging. And that same thing is happening today. You have all kinds of freedoms that probably should not exist. I mean, we at that time, I was one of the first people saying, uh, arguing at Harvard that marijuana should be legalized. There was no question about that ever. Mm -hmm. It's a plant. How can you outlaw a plant? I mean, mm -hmm. it's a, uh, to out, it's like outlawing uh, an oak tree. You know, mm -hmm. how can you do that? Uh, actually, we used to, at Harvard in my course, I used to bring a plant in and we bring in uh, a Bible quote that was, um, uh, um, and God gave us every plant, you know. So uh, we say, this is a plant. How can you outlaw the plant? Anyway, so um, the marijuana is far better than alcohol. I mean, it has some problems. Again, I proved, but it's unpopular. You can get mania from marijuana, certain people. It's a small percent, but it's real mania, and it's very serious. And you can smoke for two days and end up in a hospital for six weeks. Mm. It's not like it's a side effect where right. you are high and then you crash. It's actually you trigger mania, real mania. And you spend six weeks in, in, in a psychiatric hospital. I, I had cases of that, but I wasn't allowed to publish it. Actually, I went to the top. I don't want to mention his name, but he was mm -hmm. my one of my uh, uh, supervisors at Harvard Medical School. I went to him. I said, I have a case. This is very interesting. And it shows that mania can be triggered. And I had all the evidence and I had the hospital records. He says, no, he won't let me do that unless I give this guy marijuana again to see if I can trigger mania. And I said, that's extremely unethical. How can I trigger, you know, mania in a patient where he spent six weeks in the hospital? Well, it, it never got published. But um, mm. marijuana can cause as much lung disease as anything mm. you breathe in, obviously. And it, it's, it's being, and, and, and it also is not good for children. It's not good for the developing brain because the endocannabinoids are a huge system of 30% of the, uh, neurons. Uh, it's a retrograde system. It sort of supervises the other system that people know about. Uh, and it's based upon lipid chemistry, which we don't understand yet. We're all into proteins and RNA. Um, so the lipid st story is just beginning to come out and the brain is more than 50% lipids. And so we don't understand much about that. But in any case, um, adolescents should not be taking it because it can, uh, it can stunt their prefrontal cortex. Once your your brain is fairly settled, it's fairly benign for most people, 98% of people. But LSD, psilocybin, and mescaline are a crapshoot unless you know what you're doing and unless you have guidance because some people can have uh, very severe reactions that need to be delved into by someone like you, someone competent <laughs> to understand the psyche. So under certain, so, so I, I I think it's just a little bit crazy what's going on right now. But I, I'm happy to see the research. I mean, I'm glad they're researching it. Uh, I'm surprised no one in the organizations uh, remembers anything that we did back then. <laughs> oh, perhaps it's time to remind them. What's that? Uh, perhaps it's time to remind them that uh, well, <laughs> fifty well, years ago we did this. Come on, wake up, guys. Whatever. I don't. Think. <laughs>
I, I was interested in one thing, you, well, everything you said, but one thing I was dwelling on, which was um, giving uh, criminals uh, LSD and psychedelics yep. and and having them have sort of pivotal experiences which change them. Yep. <coughs> what do you, what, what's, what's the mechanism there? Do you know? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> uh, you know, we're arguing about that today. You listen to, uh, there are all these um, conferences now that you can listen to for free of all these experts and so-called experts who are <laughs> opining about, uh, about this in various ways. Um, and, I find very interesting the fact that, in a certain way, if you look at brain uh, mapping, you look at brain imaging, and you take uh, like LSD or psilocybin, and the, the person is having these wild experiences, like right. uh, it could be almost anything. Right? It could be you're back in mythology, you know, you're out of outer space, uh, uh, whatever, all kinds of wild mm. uh, stuff that that makes sense in its own way. Mm. You look at the brain nothing's happening it's quiet so that could and 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 this whole thing that it's serotonin is just as stupid as stuff that says depression is serotonin serotonin is everywhere it's one of the major things and the yep. fact that you can't just say oh and the, so this disproves it i thought this was very cool because there was a study that showed that the serotonin receptor that lsd you know big excitement it's all serotonin for lsd they found the receptor this receptor they found was inside the cell and serotonin doesn't go inside the cell. So what the hell is happening there? Well, something very different is happening than what this researcher thought it was. Um, but the fact is, so then you're back to the doors of perception. You're back to uh, Aldous Huxley, you know, do, do you see something that's, so uh, I've written about, uh, uh, brain injuries that cause, uh, extraordinary, uh, capacities. Hmm. I, my website, I have a number of articles about and how many people and autistic people who are geniuses in this way, but can't do this, but can do this. And so many, many of the cases of, of, you know, suddenly being able to play the Tchaikovsky piano concerto without studying piano or being able to draw anything hmm. you can see or being able to listen to something on the radio and instantly play it. That can happen from a brain, from being hit on the head. Hmm. So that raises the question of whether these capacities exist in the brain and are being released somehow. Interesting. Um, mm. So, you know, I don't know. I, I can't prove that in any case. No. There's no question of what I showed back in 1972. And, and, you know, it's funny, you could look in the American Journal of Psychiatry, the most conservative journal in the entire world. What the hell is it doing there? You know, right. I was doing this at Harvard in the psychopharm lab of Harvard. I took off two years to do research and I was the only one who had access to those people who were taking LSD. So I was doing the chromosomes of Alfred and Leary and all the Suxley and all these people. And I was proved that the chromosomes are not affected, which is what Anslinger and the government was trying to say. Whereas we showed that alcohol and tobacco do affect chromosomes, but uh, LSD did not. Uh, of course, back then to, to, to do chromosome work, you had to look on a microscope to each chromosome. We don't have what we had today. You had to actually look visually and very backbreaking work. One of the deans of Harvard, Lisko, his wife was one of the, they were the top genetics people. And he was one of the people who shielded me when I was attacked 
by the establishment for even being interested in this, but he was from Swiss. He was a Swiss, you know, he had that peaceful <laughs> concept. <laughs> Neutral. <And he laughs> my research, which involved genetics, it involved, but what I showed in the American Journal of Psychiatry, and I'm surprised they allowed me to publish it along with Shader and Salzman and the top names in the field, is uh, that it shifts the interest to spiritual things. Um, so that much I think is pretty clear. It, it, it can make you more Catholic. It can make you more Jewish. It can make you more. It can make you more of a fanatic. Mm -hmm. It can make you more uh, of a yeah. Hindu, a Buddhist, mm -hmm. or or just a spiritual person. Uh, when I say make you, you kind of the, the more you take, the more you kind of shift. Uh, so I show that that is one of the effects that seem to happen, and that seems to go along with these things where you give um, cancer patients high doses and they have spiritual experiences and they see death for what it is. They see through uh, the whole uh, uh, material uh, existence uh, conundrum. And mm -hmm. then uh, so something like that happened with these criminals. They were given large doses. And it's funny, Leary was a maniac, but he was a brilliant scientist. Mm -hmm. He was a brilliant psychologist. And the real reason uh, he was thrown out of Harvard and Andy Weil was one of the people that got him thrown out of Harvard by being the editor of the Crimson and, and writing articles about their what they were doing is they were messing around with undergraduates. Yeah. And that was the real crime. Hmm. Uh, okay. I won't go further. Yeah. Okay. No, don't. <laughs> they clearly were giving them drugs hmm. and other things. And they were doing other things. So, in other words, that was what got them dumped from Harvard. They, but the work they were doing was absolutely brilliant. And Walter Clark, who was a good friend of mine at that time, he was the uh, professor of religion of the Andover Newton Theological Seminary, the straightest guy in the world. This guy looked like the straightest Midwestern Protestant you would ever see in the world. And he would say, you know, he'd be, I'd be with him in a restaurant and it'd be offered uh, wine. He says, you know, I don't ever drink wine. I don't drink anything more dangerous than, than LSD, he would say. <laughs> Because he knew LSD was safe. Safe, yeah. Wow. Medically safe. Much, mm -hmm. much, much safer than tobacco and alcohol and all the things that everyone was drinking. And and I'm, for years, I have said that the same thing that was happening with the tobacco companies where they sponsored fake research to show that tobacco was good for cognition, the alcohol companies have been sponsoring fake research to show that alcohol is healthy. Right. And the way they did that is the placebo group included damaged people who had stopped that's right and, you know absentee people that's and right. the other group were the yeah. best of the yeah. moderate yeah and that's they compared these two groups and of course the damaged people always did worse and they said that uh a moderate alcohol is better exactly. than better yeah and they use this to push and the average american believes that right and most recently i'm very heartened to see finally research is showing up from jama from uh, Lancet, showing that there is no safe level of alcohol. Any alcohol causes 12 kinds of cancers, and alcohol causes 460,000 deaths every year. Yep. Ten times more than opiates. This whole big yep. deal about opiates. Most of the deaths are from alcohol, and that's what we should be paying attention to. Uh, also, I'm not against paying attention to opiates, but mm -hmm. you're talking about 10 times, 450,000 deaths from alcohol. 
Anyway, I'll stop uh, on that. No, no, but but I've always felt that, you know, the comparison was, oh, well, the abstinent groups don't do as well as the moderate groups. Yeah, well, your abstinent groups are probably people who've been drinking heavily for years and have quit. Uh, So that didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so your answer was, I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's, you know, that is interesting because what I'm playing with in my head um, is, and of course we're miles away from from really deciphering this, um, but is how this amazing communication, cellular communication, what's that relationship, as it were, between all of the cellular communication and our moods or our mental state or cognition? You know, what's, what is that? Because that's Absolutely fascinating. We don't yet have a clear relationship between mental states and brain activity. Right. Right. It's a hype that we do. In other words, someone says, oh, I did imaging and it shows blah, 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 blah. It's a stretch. Mm -hmm. Um, For many reasons I can go into. The fact is that the data shows you have to have at least 2,000 subjects to prove it. You have to have at least 50 uh, trials for each patient to prove anything. And even then you won't prove it. You're just showing no. a correlation, not a causation. Today, no one knows what causality is. Everyone, uh, uh, and I see that everywhere in all the scientific journals and big, uh, big scientists says, oh, this is proven. And it isn't proven. It's just, uh, you, you know, they look at a bunch of people who have dementia and they look back and they find a behavior and they say, well, that behavior caused the Alzheimer's. Yeah. Uh, there's no causation there. They right. don't have any idea what they're talking about. And, and I see that everywhere. So right. there's a f- common fallacy. And the truth of the matter is we don't, <clears throat> we don't know how the brain relates to the mind. Clearly it has something to do with it. It's like a receiver because if you bonk someone on the head, you can stop consciousness for a while. But also consciousness is between people. What is culture? What is science? That's consciousness in between a thousand and a million people. Right. Uh, how does that fit in? Uh, now, you could say these are electromagnetic fields, and there's one big field, and that goes along with the Atma and the Paramatma, and it makes sense, but it's not proven. Right. In other words, right. You know, right. Yeah. And then the interesting thing about placebo, too, <laughs> is you have people who are given the placebo, right? And presumably some of them really believe they've been given something, right? And some don't. And do the people who really believe it, does that belief actually change their chemistry? Right now, the world expert of placebo is my dear friend, Ted Kapchak, who is at Harvard. And he's probably the only person who has a full professorship at Harvard Medical School who never went to medical school. He got a degree in Chinese medicine in the 60s in China. Love it. And he then came back to the United States, wrote the book, The Web That Has No Weaver. If you see the very first volume, you'll see my name on the back, but put much more famous people in the later editions. Um, And he introduced acupuncture and Chinese medicine to the West, really. Um, He then started the first acupuncture schools, and then he started studying placebos. He was very mm-hmm. interested in placebo. 
was. And Harvard got him, and he's now a full professor. And he's kind of embarrassed with his past. He doesn't want to hear that he's the person who introduced Chinese medicine into the West. He wants to hear that the last 100 papers he's written are all the top papers of placebos. Uh, and whenever a, a surgeon wants to have a placebo, they call Ted to figure out what is a legitimate placebo. Now, recently, he says he tells patients him giving you a placebo, and it still works. So, um, okay. in other words, that's just, I'm the doctor, you're the patient, I have power, zap, mm -hmm. and it works. <laughs> and same things. So you look at the placebo of the depression, 30% um, placebo, and then you have that 20% in between that are not working with placebo. But what are those 30% that are working? What's going on there? That's yeah. the interesting point. Uh, what is yeah, the well, that, that, that's, that's exactly right, is if you believe you're getting better or you're yeah. getting some benefit, I would affect, I would assume that that actually does improve the chances of you getting. Oh, but how that works. So how? that is another insight that um, the biologist Leaf had. He was way ahead of his time, but the logic of these two things are missing. The logic of the cell and the membrane and how that connects with the unconscious and conscious. And it appears to me that right now he's selling a product called Psyche. Um, and Psyche is very mysterious. It's a it's a kind of thing where you can't really read about it unless you pay a thousand dollars or many thousands of dollars. It involves kinesiology, I know, where they have you pick up a belief, have you maybe stand up or measure your leg, and then test you while looking at your muscles. It's sort of like EMDR in okay. that. Right. It's an indirect measure, a bodily measure of the brain readjusting, of the unconscious readjusting in some way. So it's probably legitimate in that in that sense. I just wish they would actually tell people what it is. Um, <clears throat> and it's quite expensive. But in any case, uh, so uh, he Lipton is now totally tied into this psyche thing. The two of them lecture together and sell it together and oh, all that and that's great. I have no problem with that. But what does that have to do with membranes and cells? It really has nothing to do with membranes and cells. Right, right, right. Well, cells spelled differently. I mean, if I could sit Science. and believe something and affect a cluster, that would be spectacular. You know, I'd love to think and study a cluster, uh, but I don't know how to do that. So one day, maybe. Yeah, one day. Eh, probably not too. Yeah, probably in the next few months, you'll work out how to do that, I would think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the fascinating thing. And that's where everyone goes, where a lot of people go without, myself included, without the underlying science. Yeah, right. It's nice to make the supposition, well, if you believe something, it changes your... Well, I mean, you, why not just be honest? If Psyche works, that's great. It works. Yeah. But say it has something to do with the cell is is is... Stretching it a bit. It's speculative. Is 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 a kind way to. It's a kind word for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, yeah. It's a question of what you focused on. Whether that's cells with a C or cells with an S, right? Right. You know, that's that's. But um, but no. Still, it is simply mind-boggling. Um, if you know. Again, I really encourage you, anyone listening, to read 
get a copy of John Leaf's book, The Secret Language of Cells. Uh, he's also got a great website called Searching for the Mind, right? You still got that yep, going. Still there. And uh, I, 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 I put a lot of current research out on uh, Twitter. So it's John Leaf MD on Twitter. Okay. Uh, John Leaf MD. Every day I have articles that are coming out. Okay. Elon hasn't hasn't challenged you on that yet? Actually, it's interesting what happened in that regard. There was one doctor, I forget her name, but she was a right-wing fanatic, totally crazy uh, person, spouting horrible, uh, an MD, spouting horribly stupid things uh, about vaccines and things like that. And I complained. And I was getting all kinds of right-wing stuff on my feed. Um, you know, there's your feed, and then they send starred feeds, you know, they think are... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I complained. I wrote, I tried to block her and say she should be uh, penalized. After that, I started getting left-wing stuff. So <laughs> oh, it's interesting. So I don't get the right-wing stuff now. I get the left-wing oh. stuff. So they did... So I have to admit, that was... <clears throat> I mean, it's not exactly accurate. Maybe I could be in the middle somewhere. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. like the left-wing stuff right. either. Right, to right. me, it's crazy. A lot of what the left-wing are doing are nuts. To me, it's not biology. It's politics. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, I don't want to get stoned for my <laughs> opinions. I'd probably get shot for my opinions. Right. No, no. But you have to be careful. The point is, I'd rather be in the middle. I tend to be in the middle of... of mm -hmm. uh, and what is proven? Yeah. yeah. Years ago, people would say, are you a, a liberal or a conservative? Mm -hmm. And I'd say, I'm neither. I'm a radical. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. And, but, you know, hopefully, whatever distinction you give yourself, you're a believer in facts. <laughs> yes. I only go, I try to build a story based upon what we really know in science and we know a lot it's just and i'm just very thrilled by the the great deluge of science coming out uh, uh but look for what's called membraneless droplets okay membraneless droplets organelles that do not have a membrane are the vital organelles and that's the exact opposite of course with lipton cells mm. see what yeah. yeah, 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 just really, really interesting stuff, endlessly fascinating, and it really gets us thinking, hopefully, about, you know, what underpins us as human beings, right? So vastly complicated, vastly, it's more and more and more complicated um, to think uh, that these trivial, you know, they call random evolution stochastic that's the word they use to avoid having anyone know what they're talking about but <laughs> it, it really if you try to think that this is happening randomly that's so beyond stupid uh, it, yeah. it, it's absurd i mean to think that this you know just unbelievably complicated stuff could be happening and it's well proven now that the cytoplasm is not a random solution it's highly structured in many, many, many ways. There's almost no pure liquid region. There may be a couple of little lakes, but most of it is highly structured. Then you have the clusters, you have the rivulets, you have the water. And in the rivulets, of course, where you have only four layers of water, 
the unique properties of water have tremendous influence. And that's a whole new science mm. of the unique properties of water. But that's a whole other subject we could talk about. Yeah, and we will. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's not just water. Water <laughs> is 20 different things or more. Mm. Very complicated. It has unique um, uh, quantum and chemical properties because of the uniqueness of hydrogen, the uniqueness of oxygen, the uniqueness of the way they're arranged, the uniqueness of their polarity. There are layers. So every molecule, just to give you one little tidbit, is covered in, in, in water in various ways. All the charges attractive. So it's covered. Every crevice is covered in one way or another. Um, and then there are areas that are don't like water, hydrophobic, and they are on the inside of the molecule. Then you have these in between the macromolecules. You have a layer here and a layer here. You have two layers in between. A lot of quantum and chemical stuff is happening in, in that. But that's a whole other subject I can explain one day. I actually have to stop there three. That's fine. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for your time, Dr. Leith. It's amazing. It's always amazing. We'll, we'll do, let's let's talk. Let's continue the conversation. Yeah, there's a lot more to talk about. So if you yeah. want to do more, it's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And right, best of luck. Yeah. Take care. Thank you, John Leith. Excellent. Excellent.